insurance, employer benefits, can't live with them, can't live without them? I don't know. Today, I have Dr. Amy Avazade on Inside Reproductive Health. She was on the show about a year or so ago. It was episode 88, if you recall. And I just kept asking and trying to figure out why does she have this system for patient attraction of all of the content that she's putting out there of this brand and messaging if she's not trying to scale an enterprise. She would certainly have more patients than she knows what to do with if, if she didn't, especially being in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, come to find out, it has partly to do with the fact that they only take self-pay patients at Dr. Amy's practice. And that's when the light went off and we talk about the funnel that's necessary today, what kind of market that you have to be in, and a couple other requirements for being a self-pay only REI practice. Many of you wonder about this and you wonder if, well, I keep getting lower reimbursements on this service from this insurance company or this employer benefits company, well, there might be a way for you to just forego that altogether. And I recommend that you listen to Dr. Amy's take before you do this. So I really hope you enjoy today's show about being a self-pay only practice with Amy Avazadeh. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Dr. Avazade, Amy, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health. It's always great to be talking to you, Griffin. Thanks for inviting me back. If anybody has listened to episode 88, and a lot of people listening now will, in episode 88, when I had Dr. Amy on the first time, I'm just trying to get after, like, I keep asking you questions like, why build a brand like this? Why build something that is otherwise meant to scale if you're not trying to scale? Like, you're not trying to open more offices, hire more docs, things like that. And I could, like, I kept grilling you. I was grilling the crap out of you the whole episode. And I still couldn't figure it out why after the conversation. And then sometime after, like in one of those detective movies where there's a benign clue that sets something off and the client's like, Washington Street. That's right. The suspect was from DC. And then he runs back to the headquarters. And it was like that when I learned about your, uh, that you are a self-pay practice, that you don't take insurance and other types of, you know, like the employer benefit coverage. And I was like, that makes sense. It all is starting to make sense now. So can you talk a little bit about that model? And then I'll talk about how I perceive it from a branding perspective or the questions I have there. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that I don't own an IVF lab. Right. And so when you accept insurance, you have to accept the rates that they're going to give you. And if you don't own the lab, it's hard to carve out the global fee for the physician fee and then the lab fee. So I was taking insurance up until 2013. And then I started paying for my patients IVF 
because I felt so bad that their insurance was denying the claim on the ICSI, for example. The patient expected that to be paid, but the IVF lab expects to be paid $2,000 for ICSI. And then I was writing the checks out. And I'm like, this is just, it doesn't make sense. Like, why would I be paying for people to, to do IVF with me? I just can't you know, sustain a practice like that. So then I said, you know what, I have to go cash only. And if people want to receive care from me, they're going to have to, you know, forego the insurance. And we're so lucky in the Bay Area. Like everyone's my friend here. There's so many fertility doctors. So if there's a patient that really needs to use their insurance, I happily make, I call them warm introductions to doctors that I think will be a really good fit for them after I meet with them and talk through their story with them. So, you know, I do a lot of, you know, first consults for fertility patients, you know, second opinion consults, and then I just hand them off to a doctor that accepts their insurance. So it was 2013 mm -hmm. that this change happened. Was it ripping off the Band-Aid all at once? How did you do it? Well, it was slowly because obviously you have to give notice to the insurance companies. And then it was no new patients with this insurance up until, you know, I could actually, you know, say absolutely no patients at all with insurance. And it was hard for me emotionally because I felt so bad saying no to people, especially patients who were well-established who want to come back for, let's say, another transfer. That was really tough to say, you can't use your insurance with me. But again, because they could still use their insurance at the IVF lab, they could easily just transition over and I was there to help and guide them. It's not like I abandoned them in any way, but that, that was tough. It was really hard. My accountant was like, Amy, look at how much money you paid the IVF lab so you could do cases there. You actually lost money, you know, helping these patients. And for me, you know, there's a good reason why I don't own a lab. And the reason is I would do everyone's IVF for free, literally. Like I would just be like, oh, you don't have to. But now that I know, like I have to write a check for that patient to have IVF, that for me, you know, makes it so that I can still, you know, run the office the way I do and take care of as many patients as I can take care of. So how long did that take? About a year to go from, you know, well, it was something that I had been thinking about for a while. And so finally, once I did it, it took about 12 months to get to the point where I could completely just say no insurance at all. And what is the arrangement with the lab like in order to be able to do that? To say no insurance? Well, it's a facility agreement, just like a surgeon has privileges at, let's say a surgery center. For me, I have privileges at different IVF labs and the same fees that a patient sees, it's all very transparent. So let's say one of the centers charges a patient, you know, let's say $3,000 to do an embryo biopsy. Well, rather than them paying the IVF lab, the $3,000 for the embryo biopsy fee, they pay one fee for their IVF cycle. And then I pay the lab for the services performed based on that. Okay. When I've seen the model of not owning a lab before, very often the person has one lab that they use. And I think, you know, the three or four examples I'm thinking of, they all each use one lab. You use multiple labs? I, I predominantly use one lab, but the thing is that like, we're all, again, like we're all friends here in the Bay area. And, you know, I have patients that, you know, go to another lab because now they have insurance at another lab, but then they want to come back to me and have me do the transfer for them, for example, right. Rather than move the embryos to another lab, I can go to that lab and, you know, do the transfer for them. So it just makes it easier for the patient, for example, who let's say wants another perspective or, you know, still wants my help after doing IVF somewhere else. And I can still go to that lab. So yeah, I have privileges at many different labs, but it's all just to help the patient and make things harder on me, but I do it with joy. And it's, it's fun for me to just see people and say hi to them again and see how things are going in their lab. Would this work if you owned your own lab? Would, would you be able to do this 
self-pay model? And if not, why not? No, I think you could. I mean, if you owned your own lab, you could do self-pay, but it just really depends on the where you are, you know, like the demographics in the city that you're in. I'm really fortunate in the Bay Area that I'm in a situation where when I make a recommendation to a patient for a treatment plan, like I think, you know, you're 40 years old, I think you might need two to three IVF cycles. I think we need to bank embryos. We need to genetically test them. Patients are like, okay, I'll, I'll make that work. I'll see what I need to do financially. But I know that there are parts of the country where that's really hard, even for patients to even consider one IVF cycle. So even saying the word a couple thousand dollars can be really a challenge for some people. So I know I'm in a unique situation here. I'm, it's not definitely something for every community, you know, every doctor across the country, but it definitely is something that I've been able to do in the Bay Area just because of, you know, the area we're in. And also I, I do have patients that come in obviously from out of town as well. And so they come here knowing, you know, upfront what the cycle feeds are here and they're different. And in every, you know, in every area of the country, they're going to be a little bit different based on, you know, the cost of living in that area. Yeah. I don't suspect you'd be able to do that in Akron, Ohio. And that's that somebody practices in Akron, Ohio. I don't know them, but, it, or I could use any other town as an example. Uh, I'm not picking on Akron, but I think my hypothesis is that this works in more affluent coastal cities with very large populations. I had somebody asking me about this years ago. It was closer to when I first came into the field. So it was probably five or six years ago. And they're asking me if this was possible. And this was my hypothesis that you would have to be in a really large market. And then you'd also have to, to be in a, you'd have to have a wide funnel that narrows down into that short spout coming out of that funnel that the wide funnel meaning your your marketing message attracting people because you're going to have less people that are able to pass through the bottom of that funnel and so it's got to be wide at the top because it's shorter at the bottom and i want to talk about that funnel with you and the brand but i have one question that's probably evidence of my ignorance as a non-clinician, but how do you report success rates in that way if you're using different people's labs? I say, if you share with me your age, your follicle count, your AMH, your FSH, I'll let you know what your individualized pregnancy rates are based on the information that I have about you. And I can give that to the patient individually. I don't think it's fair for, let's say, a 39-year-old with an AMH of 0.1 to compare herself with all, you know, the SART data on 39 year olds, because obviously her chances are going to be different. So that I think circumvents a lot of the challenge of success rates to begin with. Like the whole controversy around success rates is that you're positioning something like really broadly, you're cherry picking data. Everybody complains about what everybody else is you know, posting on their website or how they're choosing. And, and so it's like, you're, it seems to me like you're avoiding that altogether. Yeah. I mean, when patient asks, like, where can I find your success rates? I went to start and I don't find you. I say, well, I can't, you can't take the lab that you're going to as a sign of your potential success rate, but I can tell you, you know, just based on the data that I've learned about you, what I think your chances are. And again, we're so lucky in the Bay area, like every lab here is basically amazing and awesome. So you can't really go wrong with any of the labs around here. How often does someone ask you that? I mean, my patients are really educated. So those conversations sometimes come up, you know, maybe at like one out of 50 patients will ask me, 
the question. One out of 50. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a lot. And yeah, it was amazing to me because when I first came into the field, I, I came through surveying patients and they talked about success rates and the clarity of success rate. There was a theme that came up, but like one in 50 is not a lot. And also it's not one of the most traffic pages or the highest converting pages. When there was a discussion about SART and marketing guidelines at ASRM a couple years ago is the Denver one. And I had my laptop and I opened it up while the speakers were talking and I went into some of our clients, Google analytics, and I just looked at their most traffic pages and their highest converting pages and success rates weren't in the top 20 for either. And I think patients know that it's not so much about what's reported. It's about like how they feel at the clinic. And obviously, you know, that's really important about being heard and cared for, but also like, depending on where you are, some patients just don't have a choice you know, they don't have a choice as far as like which lab that they can go to because they have to stay close to home for different reasons. So, yeah. I don't want to say that it's not important because I've heard patients say so many times about how important it is. I'm just sharing what, how the behavior seems to map out from what we can actually measure. And it seems like other things are much closer to the main influence of the decision. So, Okay. So, well, you have this flexibility to be able to accommodate patients at different labs. You don't own your own lab. It took you about a year to, to wean off of the insurance drug. I think that there's probably a lot of, (laughs) a lot of people listen. Well, now you might call it the employer benefit drug too. And that can be a mischaracterization. I mean, there's many people that aren't going to get care otherwise. So I'm not dismissing insurance or employer coverage. I think it's a net benefit for people. So I want to make that perfectly clear. I'm just saying on the other side that I do see providers being the ones to get squeezed very often. They're in the middle of this. And I've seen some of the reimbursements that people get. And it's like, they're, they're not even breaking even, as you said, in some no. cases. And there's just one of me. I have 17 full-time employees. I, I can't survive on insurance with the volume that I'm at not owning an IVF lab. It's just not feasible at all. So with the amount of time I want to provide, you know, no matter who you are, every patient to me is VIP. And I want to make sure that I can you know, provide that level of care without feeling like Costco, like you know, just so many people coming in and out. I can't give so much of myself if, if I'm doing that. And I'm already seeing a lot of, I'm seeing over 30 patients a day as it is. I do all my own scans. And so I had to do something to, to actually basically limit the practice a little bit as well. Why do all your own scans? I feel like, you know, I went into IVF or fertility medicine, wanting to take care of patients and wanting to do my own scans, my own retrievals, my own transfers. And I feel like sometimes data is lost in between scans when you have inter um, observer variability. And sometimes, you know, other people making decisions about, you know, what you should do based on data, not other people, but sometimes the data is not consistent because there are different people scanning. And I feel like that's always been important to me. And those are the things that I see when I, you know, review records and I can see things like, oh, that's interesting. You can see that, 
you know, you can tell that different people were doing the scan throughout the cycle. Like I had a patient once and many times where she had five different people scanning her in one cycle. And that I think it could have affected her care. And so that's why it's important to me to scan my own patients. And it also provides that, you know, they hear from me. I have that sparkle checklist. You probably know it. I give them all the elements of what's going on, the size of their follicles, the protocol. Am I happy? The lining, when the retrieval is going to be, what the lining looks like, you know, all that kind of stuff. They'll get that in real time without wondering what's going on. Well, it seems to me like you're in a position to be able to make that decision for yourself. It doesn't seem like pure efficiency, but that's okay. This is your business, your practice, and you're in a position to make that decision because you're not being squeezed on margins in other areas or or having to bring in a tech to do it for just to be able to to pay that bill. So I suspect that there's probably a lot of people listening that envy you that are in that smaller practice group and especially like the one to two doc groups that if they're selling to private equity it's not at a big multiple maybe it's enough for them to be happy with retiring but it's not the same as like these seven doctor groups are getting and i suspect that there's a lot of one to two rei practices listening that envy you and want to be able to do this, but they're also scared. They think that, well, I might not be able to meet that. And I might not be able to, to make ends meet that way, meet the volumes that we'd need to do if insurance or an employer benefit company isn't paying for it. So do you see this drying up at all? Do you see on the horizon? I don't think that there's enough cash pay patients out there as employer benefits increase as insurance coverage and mandates increase. No, I don't see that. I think there's plenty of patience for, for all of us. And it's never about competition. I don't necessarily see me as someone that people would envy. I feel like if anything, they might feel sorry for me because <laughs> I work the number of hours that I work seven days a week. I see patients Saturdays and Sundays. I'm not taking a single day off this year. The only day I'm not seeing a patient is on Christmas day. And so most people don't want that kind of life. And so I've chosen that for myself, for my own reasons, just because of just my personality and who I am. But I think most people would like the option to not scan every single patient, but still be able to communicate with their patients. And you're right, they might have that fear. They can't do that just because they're, it's just not something that they actually want to do. Most of my friends were like, I don't want to do what you do. <laughs> I don't want to see patients seven days a week. I want to break. You're crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll no, take it as a compliment. <laughs> no, I know that you're a meteor. And it's like when I hear people talk about like entrepreneurs or, or people that just have seemingly unlimited bandwidth and energy, that's at least how I perceive you. I don't know you, right. you deeply personally, but I also right. don't see how you do like it's not a requirement that you have to scan your own patients because not you're not all. taking insurance, not right? Not at like, all, but I think patients come here because they want that. They know that they're going to get that. You know, that they miss that in their last cycle. They miss, like they share experiences where they did an entire cycle and never saw a doctor once. And then they met the doctor that was going to do their retrieval for them. And that's not the doctor that they met at their new patient 15 minute video call, you know? And so people want that. And so they know that they're going to get that here. So that's why they come a lot of times. Well, staying on the topic of the scans, what's the difference between the physician being with the patient the entire time for their scan versus having a tech do it? And then the physician popping in and saying, oh, hey, catching up for three minutes. I mean, it's efficiency. I mean, I can do a scan, communicate with the patient. I actually do my own blood draws 
So within like 15 minutes, I can have it all done. The patient feels heard. She's sharing her symptoms. I'm telling her what to do next. And I can make the decisions right then and there without any delays. So I think it's more efficient than having someone do it. I pop in, I say, oh, I'll meet with you the end of the day. We'll have another interaction. It just seems more efficient to do it all at the same time. How many of your patients come from outside of the Bay Area if you had to ballpark percentage-wise? A lot. I mean, I think this week I have at least five in a hotel doing um, a cycle with me. So if I were to say percentage-wise, probably at least 15, maybe even 20% are from out of town. So that has to do with like the funnel that you have from the top. They're finding you from social media, from your podcast, from your mainstream Uh, media appearances. That's right. Exactly right. So people see me like quote in the New York Times or, you know, some other piece you write on the news of the Today Show, then they'll see my name and they'll reach out and they'll do their Facebook research. They'll go into groups on Facebook and then have people also say, oh, I went to her. And then that's more affirming for them to reach out and set up an appointment. I should have asked Dr. Vazadeh if she uses Engaged MD because technology making life easier for your patients and making the work experience better for your team is Engaged MD in a nutshell. You've got a limited amount of time to cover with each patient. Engaged MD allows your consults to be more productive so you can do what you're meant to be doing so your nurses can doing do what they're best at. You're spending less time answering the same questions. You're then tailor fitting that time to more educated patients, patients with truly informed consent, because enrolling patients in EngageMD is easy. It takes like 20 seconds. Then they get some of their time back, the patients that is, because they're watching the video modules with their partners on their time. They're completing the knowledge checks with their partners. All of this is sequential. They're signing and submitting it and EngagedMD documents everything so that your physicians, your nurses, your team members don't have to get back to doing what should be involved in a technological solution anyway. If you go to EngagedMD.com slash IRH, they will give you 25% off your implementation fee. That's EngagedMD.com slash IRH. Now back to our conversation with Dr. Abazadeh. So you've got this massive top of the funnel, which I was asked, which is what I was grinding my brain about the last time we talked on this podcast, but why, why? And it makes complete sense because the wider the funnel that you have, the more you can have mechanisms in place that allow people to self-select. If there's one type of, or not one type, but if there's a narrower funnel of people that may be able to be a good fit for your model. And we do that with our firm, like inside reproductive health is for everybody. I want everybody to listen to it. I want the drug reps listening to it. I want docs listening to it. It's mostly practice owners and execs, but I want everybody in the field to pick this up. Like it's the wall street journal that a business person reads or watches Forbes. I want people to watch, listen to, read Inside Reproductive Health every morning. I want this like weekly podcast to be just the beginning and I want to create a lot more content for a big top of the funnel. But then I have a very you know kind of narrow bottom of the funnel. I don't really have sales calls with people because I don't have a sales team. I don't want to hire a sales team. I, want, I have my delivery team. I have people that manage accounts, but I don't want to hire like this entire sales apparatus. So I've got this big top of the funnel, social media, the podcast, the speaking, 
And then the middle of the funnel is all about our points of view of how we do things. And then the bottom of the funnel is like, if you want to engage us, here's this $600 engagement that, that allows you to test it out. And I don't really talk with people. Uh, if somebody wants to send their marketing director, I don't talk to them. To me, that feels like an insurance equivalent of like, no, that's not a good fit for us. And you know, I might talk to a principal for 15 minutes, but it's just about our process. And, and if they want that $600 offer, that's if there's no commitment that gets people in and hopefully I've created enough content to help them decide for themselves if they're a good fit or not. But how do you narrow down that funnel when you have such a huge top of the funnel, people are seeing you from all over the country. How do you start to narrow it down of, well, we don't take this insurance. We don't take these employer benefits. This is why. How do you weed that out so that people aren't pissed at you when they're contacting you? Simple AI. So I have an amazing AI tool. So for anyone who's listening, who is interested, I work with no hold N O H O L D. And I'm working on systems to automate many things that are inefficient in the practice. And so we've started with new patient onboarding. So it's basically a virtual assistant that we've created with their help, of course, they actually created it, but all the language comes from me and my assistants here. So that patients at the start of the onboarding process understand what they're, they're onboarding and for, and they're onboarding for an experience with a physician that will not take insurance. And so before, you know, when people were picking up the phone, my new patient coordinator would get all the information and then tell them, by the way, we don't take insurance. Is that okay with you? And you're right. Like, that's not how it should be. So from the very beginning, it's, you know, welcome to the practice, click here. If you want to be a new patient, then the very next thing says, Dr. Amy does not participate with any insurance companies. It's self-pay only. Please click here to continue. And if you don't want to continue, we send you a really nice message about my IVF classes. I have courses, eggwhisperschool.com is where people can go. So if people don't want to engage like formally through being a patient, you can certainly take one of my classes that I do on IVF or egg freezing or fertility testing. So are they seeing this only after they contact the practice or is there some content that you put out in different forms? Yeah. So it's, we actually don't do any new patient consults without patients going through the website first. So if someone were to call the office, we would simply say, please go to the website and click schedule a consult. And then they'll find the information right there. And then they can continue the process. It's about 10 to 15 minutes of questions uh, that they answer. And then my new patient coordinator will get them into the portal, send them all the forms they need to sign, get the medical records and schedule an appointment. This is another benefit to that's another bottom of the funnel requirement that I think people would love, but the top of the funnel isn't big enough. And this is another way of looking at why you want the top of your funnel to be larger. So most people today are busier than they have been in years. They have more new patients that they know what to do with in 75% of cases. But if you have a wider funnel, the wider your funnel is, the tighter you can make the, the requirements of the middle and the bottom of the funnel. And for most people, I think that they would love that if their patients had to do that before they scheduled a new consult, but they don't feel like they can 
afford the attrition for those that wouldn't do it. Yeah. And you can include even insurance. You know what I mean? It's not just using a tool like this isn't just for people who are like me. You can use it for insurance and then it would capture the insurance information right away. And then it could, that information can go to the insurance, um, the insurance folks in the office that, you know, check benefits and tell the patients what their benefits are before they come in to prevent, again, that the hard part of having insurance is when you get to the clinic and then you're told something that is different than what your insurance told you. And then there's issues surrounding that, that, you know, I'm so lucky that I don't have to deal with anymore. So they're seeing this, which in the no hold was the AI system. Yeah, no hold is the company that I use. Yeah. So they're the one that set it up and they're, you know, working on onboarding other clinics as well. And so that's still at the bottom because of the funnel, because that's when people are contacting you. Do you have it in like the middle of the funnel, like the videos that you do, or do you let people know even before they contact, we don't accept insurance? No, it's not something that I advertise or talk about on my podcast, because my podcast is really for, you know, education for everybody, for the masses. I don't put it out on my um, blog articles, like in asterisks, by the way, Amy doesn't accept insurance. It's just something for patients who are ready to, to meet with me, then they can get onboarded and they'll find out at that point. Do you ever get people that are pissed at that point? I haven't. I mean, if they're pissed, they don't let me know. I mean, certainly they're sad. You know, sometimes people contact me and through Instagram, for example, and they're like, do you take my insurance? And I say, no, I don't, but I'm happy to give you a, a second opinion on your case. And then I'm happy to like do that warm intro with a doctor in your area that I feel like would be best suited for you or, but I've never had anyone get pissed at me. Yeah. How do so you get pissed at the face? I mean, like, <laughs> No, that is not. It must be my face that is a lot more easy <laughs> to get pissed. Maybe it's the beard. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's maybe it's the the hair. I don't know. But I do. You're getting people basically to go from the the top of the funnel to the bottom pretty effectively, and that could have to. You're, you were joking, but it could have to do with your persona. Maybe I I know that we've had to invest more in like the middle of the content because sometimes it do get people pissed at me when they're reaching out and they're and it tends to come from the industry side more because we serve the industry side and we think a lot of what we do translates to it but we have definitely we think we still know more than any regular marketing agency but we have not built the systems to the degree that we have for practices and so we tend to do a little bit more consulting upfront. And so it's a bit more expensive. And some people are like, well, I, it sounds like you're just charging to, to get to know our situations. Like, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. I charge you to get to know your situation. And I think what you have to do to be able to do something like this, where you are inevitably going to have to turn many people away. And in your case, you're, you're sending people to other channels that do need care. In order to be able to do that, you have to have other places that you can refer to them and have resources for them. So I don't feel bad about turning people away because I put out 130 episodes of Inside Reproductive Health and articles upon articles of really in-depth points of view on physician outreach systems and IVF conversion systems and things that take me 20 hours to create. And so I feel like, you know, if somebody's like, well, we think we should just be able to talk to you. It's like, if I haven't given you enough information to decide that 
600 bucks or $1,500, then I haven't done a good enough job. But I do have those things to be able to give them for free. And the vast majority of people are understanding. And so you have that. So you talked about some of the things that you do. What are some of those resources that you give people when they are in a position where they can't afford to pay out of pocket? Well, I mean, I have classes. So I have a live class every month. I have an egg freezing class, for example, fertility awareness class, like teaching people what level, you know, what to get checked, you know, what to ask your doctor. So those classes are pretty affordable. They're anywhere from like 30 to $60. And then I have my blog and then my YouTube channel and then the podcast. And so, you know, those are the different ways that people can engage with me without paying to, to see me formally as a doctor. And I always tell them, obviously, that whatever I share with them is not to be considered an expert opinion because I'm just sharing information and not medical advice. And soon, hopefully in the next, you know, six months, I'll have an app where people can engage with me more formally without the being fully onboarded as a patient. And that might be a price point, kind of like a subscription model where they can get their questions answered. And for me, it's going to be helpful because right now I get questions through so many different social media channels and it's hard. I feel bad. Like I want to reply to people, but I just can't because I can't go back. Like if I ask, you know, someone will be like, you know, what do you think about this egg count? Well, I can't engage back and forth with them because I'll lose with the number of messages I get. I, I, I won't be able to go back to that. But with an app for me, it'll be really nice because I'll be able to track the questions and be able to answer them. And then that will be a really fun thing. And hopefully remember the entrepreneurial side of me, you know, I don't plan on working forever, right? We all end up not being able to work. At, I mean, I'm not planning on dying anytime soon, but this could be something that- I thought you did plan on working forever. I, I thought you were just going to- will. But at some point, do a retrieval like, and then keel over. That's, that's probably what's going to happen. My grandfather, God rest his soul, did that. Yeah, I remember that story. Yep. So I hopefully will not, you know, keel over like the Peloton guy. I, I hopefully won't do that. But, you know, that might be something, you know, because I don't have a practice to sell. I don't think there's much to sell when it comes to, you know, what I do. But that might be something that would have value in the future for somebody. Well, if you wanted to, you could absolutely sell that brand. That's a huge funnel for somebody. So there's something to sell there. We'll have that for another topic. But I think that, that having the subscription model, something that's low cost, having all of the free content, including the classes, something that's free, is absolutely necessary to do something like that. You do it, we do it. But if somebody's contemplating this idea... I, you, you have to be able to give people something, especially because they're, they're turning to you for something so serious. And so I don't think that you can do this without doing that. I mean, maybe you could viably, but I think it would be a liability to reputation. And also, I think you'd probably feel pretty crappy if you had to turn people away completely empty handed. Right. So I still think that some people are envying you. I still think that some people are listening to, to this thinking, well, I wonder if we could pull this off. You talked about how much you're working, but is, is that a requisite for being a self-pay only group? I like to me, it seems like just you, like that's just, just Amy Avazade. Yeah, but, but somebody could work the same as, as, as they did when they're taking insurance, right? Or sometimes even less because you would have less staff. No, you'd have to have less billing staff and, and so much less resources dedicated to that. It seems like you could work less. My issue is saying no. So I have people like that will reach out today and they'll be like, I just found out my IVF cycle didn't work. Can you get me in for a cycle this weekend? My period's going to start. And I'll be like, yes. 
So I can't say no and not work as hard as I'm doing. You know what I mean? It's like, I, you know what I'm trying to say? It's like, that's the issue that I have is if someone needs me, I'm not going to say, well, call me in March and then I'll, you know, put you on a list. There's no list with me. Once you're in, you're in. And I, you know, once you're my patient, I will get you in right away. And so that's the issue is just the number of patients ask me like, how many people are you doing IVF at, at one time? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't count. I don't think about like when I'm going to see my last patient in the day, I just like look forward to each encounter and just keep going. And I don't have that kind of monitor in my head. Does that number keep going up then? Yeah. Like it's more than it was last year than it was two years ago than it was three years ago. Yeah, it is. Okay. So, and so for you, it's just squeezing those patients into whatever minutes you have in the day for other people, that's going to look like an increasing wait list which many of them are already dealing with. I think for some people, they're thinking, okay, well, is my market big enough? Like the New York San Fran's, LA's, those are the, the markets where I see this working. I don't think the Fairbanks, Alaska's, or the Buffalo, New York's, or some of the smaller markets. But then I'm wondering about the Houston's, the Dallas's, the Charlotte's, the Atlanta's. And I think you probably could if you had the right funnel, especially if as you say, 15% of your patients are from out of town. Right. And I wake up, you know, I start seeing patients at 6am. So if I have, let's say my agri-triple scheduled at nine and I have patients between nine and 10, I'll just start an hour earlier to see them. So it's not unusual for me to start at 6am and then I'm not, I don't, I basically don't stop working until I sleep. Well, other than that, do you, do you, of your inability to say no, because I think other people would just say, okay, well, let's make that a wait list. And even if we get to that, it's a good problem to have because it assuages our concern that we wouldn't be able to meet the volume without having the insurance or the benefit paid patients. Is there anything else for people to consider before they jump into this. And one thing I'm thinking about is a debate I had with Dr. Harriton on this show where I see more people doing this because I think that there's too many people that feel that are at a point where they're like, well, this just economically, the decision is made for me. And so anyway, before they make that decision, what else do they need to consider? You can't do what I do and own a lab. You just can't. I mean, I couldn't possibly. Wait a minute. Earlier in the episode, I asked if you could do this with lab and you said you could. I mean, no, no, you could go cash pay, but you can't do it the way I do it. You can't see as many patients without, because the lab would take more, like it would just be another thing to deal with. Like I'm already dealing with the practice and the HR stuff with employees and hiring and day-to-day stuff. I couldn't also then focus on the lab and deal with that as well. You know what I mean? So the reason why I can do this and do it as much as I do is because I don't have the responsibility of overseeing a lab at all. You know, I don't have to worry about staffing the lab and, you know, what's going on there because other people who are really good at it way better than I would ever be are doing it for me. I just love people in business that makes their own thing. Like to me, that's what being an entrepreneur is about, or a small business owner, they're not exactly the same thing, though they're on the same spectrum. But the ideal of either is being able to craft something that you want. And if you craft something with a huge scale, you have to meet to the demands of the marketplace. But if you're crafting something that's, it doesn't have to scale to the entire market, 
you could say, all right, well, is there a segment of the market that allows me to do exactly what I want to do? It doesn't matter if, if it's not for a hundred percent of the market, if I can even craft out 1% or two, 10, whatever it might be just enough to support the vision that I want to me, that's what I really admire about different business owners that do that. And I think you are just like, you're the example, the standard of who that person is. So how would you want to conclude to our audience that is mostly execs in the field and a lot of them are practice owners, whether they're thinking about this or whether they've dismissed it, how would you want to conclude about this model of, of building a practice that self-pay and so that you can run it the way you want to? I would just say, don't be scared. You know, the patients will come. If you provide the best care, they're going to find a way to work with you, even if it means not working with their insurance. And so if you care about people, they're going to know, and they're going to feel like they're not going to leave your practice if you make the change. Dr. Amy Avazadeh, I know how damn busy you are. And so I appreciate you obliging me to come back on Inside Reproductive Health within less than a year of each other. Thanks so much for coming back on. And I hope people really enjoyed the show. Thank you, Griffin. Pleasure to be on. Hope to see you again, maybe in another year. It'll be my pleasure. You've been listening to Inside Reproductive Health, sponsored by Engaged MD. For technology to streamline patient education and informed consent, visit engagedmd.com slash IRH for 25% off your implementation fee. That's engagedmd.com slash IRH.